0: I'll be reading uh, from 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn. And one must interpret But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. And you went to the furthest extent of making peace with man and sending your own son. Help us not be petty. Help us not be envious when we see gifted people use their gifts. Help us be thankful that you have blessed and you use people. Help us learn today about this passage. And uh, I pray that you'll gift Bob as he speaks to us and help the Holy Spirit teach us. We come to you in the name of the Prince of Peace, your Son, Jesus. Amen.
1: Good morning.
0: You know, most times
1: over the years, almost all the time, I would have a text and I would look for the interpretation and then the application. This is a different sermon in the sense that the application came first and then the text. And uh, and so that's why I've titled this message, What Gordon Graham Taught Me About Leadership. And that's that's really true. If you were at his service, uh, then you will understand better what I'm talking about. But as we were preparing for, <laughs> for that service, Gordon had said to me at some stage in the game, at one of the funerals I had done, preach that funeral at mine. I couldn't remember which funeral that was. And, and, uh, now I know with Joyce, she tells me every time I see her, it's Ephesians. That's my text for her. I got that one down. But, but here's Gordon wanting me to do this. And, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And, and I always try to, to, to pick a text and to do a message that really fits, uh, with them and their circumstance. So when I was talking to his son, Bruce, about the service and how we would do it, he mentioned kind of casually as an aside, uh, you know, uh, we have a, a video that my dad did 30 years ago. He was, he was a computer uh, inventory management consultant, and he was an expert, and he went around doing teaching and instruction, and he'd made a 13-session video. And on the 13th session, at the end of that, he said something like this, you know, 100 years from now, you won't remember me, and you won't remember the message, nobody will remember you. He said, but there are some things that we will remember long term, and that's what I'd like to talk to you about, and if you'll stick with me a little longer, I'll talk to you about that. He gave a 12-minute presentation of the gospel that was beautiful. By the way, he got some pushback for that, and it wasn't the only time he had done it. But it was so good, I said to Bruce, good grief. Usually I give the gospel message, he's done it. Why would I upstage Gordon when people are there for him? He ought to do it. And so you remember if you were at the service that basically uh, we just played that message and I closed in prayer and, and, and I had no regrets. But in the course of that uh, consideration, the, the passage that we're dealing with today came to my mind and especially verses uh, 29 and 30. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. It's the first time I had ever thought of that text in terms of application. And I thought to myself, that's really, that's really where we're at is, is somebody has proclaimed the gospel and, and yeah, I may be standing up, but I need to sit down. And and so that's what I did. Well, that became a kind of an incubation uh, period starter for me. And I began to think about that text a whole lot more. And And this is sort of the consummation of my thoughts, thanks to Gordon, about this particular text and its teaching for us. I think it is important to all of us for a variety of reasons. Here's one. We generally, when we describe what we're doing as a church, would go to Acts 2.42. The clearest text on how a church should worship is 1 Corinthians 14. It's crystal clear, and it's instructive. This isn't just how that church did it, because they were doing it wrong. It was how that church and every church ought to do it. I've never heard a sermon on this text I've never seen that applied before. And I have to ask myself why. And and the reality is, the evangelical church has avoided 1 Corinthians 14 like the plague. The clearest text is the one that's never used. And I'd like to suggest some reasons why. And I'm not really throwing rocks here, but. Let me pick on cessationists first. Cessationists say there is no such thing as the gift of tongues, and there is no such thing as prophecy today. That was for then, not now. Well, this text, he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And don't forbid speaking in tongues. Ooh, this is a nasty text for a cessationist. And so let's just push it off to the side, and we'll just say that was for another time, not for our own uh, day. And there are those, especially in our culture today, who don't particularly like what Paul has to say about women's role in worship in the church. And so, again, off to the side it goes, right? Here's, Here's another one that I've been thinking about. The professional production of worship today pushes this text aside. Now think about this. When you look at, at worship, and especially, but not exclusively, megachurch worship, you're televising it, you're doing all of this. It's done by a small group of professionals who make everybody else a spectator. Folks, this text just throws a stone at that and says, no, 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 everybody's a participant. And and the professionals say to themselves, wait a minute, we don't want amateurs. Now, Now think about if our service just the last hour, if that was broadcast, the television people would go nuts. The reason is you can't have more than two or three seconds of silence. What do you do with silence on TV? This silence was brought to you by, you can't. And and so the problem is that you really, this kind of thing with the way in which it carries itself out, it doesn't fit. So what do you do? Push it aside. Push it aside. And, And so this text, which should be very instructive, is very painful for many people. Another reason why this text is important is because failure to heed it puts many churches on death row. I'm involved with a a group called Biblical Eldership Resources, and and we deal with a lot of churches like ours. And I I see and I hear over and over again, well, our church now is declining in size. Uh, Our elders are older sometimes senile, uh, you think I'm kidding, I am not, folks, and, and and we don't have any younger people. What do we do? And sadly, my answer, if I'm honest, is too late. It's too late. You should have done something long before this, and this text tells us what it is. So, this has huge implications, I think, for... Uh, for all leadership, especially leadership in the church, but leadership beyond the church as well. Now, there's another thing this text does, and that is it helps exemplify what some of us uh, would call Bible study methods. I got to tell you a story about that. I told Tom. When we were at Believer's Chapel years ago, we had a a number of young seminarians like we have uh, today, but... We the, the chapel would have them teach something, and one of the elders uh, gave this word of, of wisdom to a friend of mine. You can teach anything you want except Bible study methods. You know why? Because of Howie Hendricks. Everybody was so excited about Howie's method that that's the first thing they taught. Well, after you've heard it five times, it's enough. and 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 so... This really does exemplify, I think, the need for and the use of Bible study methods. But typical of my style, I've edited them a little bit. So the classic one was observation, interpretation, correlation, application. That's good. Here's mine. Observation uh, comes first. I cross out the word correlation, and I call that triangulation. And what that means is other texts help us understand this. Really the same thing, but I like triangulation better. And, and it's more up to date, right? Cell phones and all that stuff. Uh, third, I call it percolation. That's really meditation. I think it's huge. I've been, I've been thinking on this text now for months. And the reality is, I'm still coming to, to things where I said, Why did I think of that before? So, percolation, then interpretation. Oh, boy, you're going to love this next one. Extrapolation. This is huge. This is huge, my friends. By the way, I looked, that's an awful big word. It's the kind that lawyers would use and charge you 50 bucks for. But it's, it really means generalized Generalization: taking something small and more specific and making it broader in its application. That's a huge piece of Bible study methods. First Corinthians chapter nine, Old Testament text: "Don't muzzle the ox when it treads the corn." See, some people would say to themselves, "I'm not a farmer; don't have an ox, and and <laughs> there ain't no corn." <laughs> you know, and, and and that somehow says. This didn't apply to me. Well, Paul knew how to extrapolate because he drew from that a principle, and Jesus did too, by the way, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And if that's the case, then Paul can say, Barnabas and I have the right to be supported in our ministry. That's that's an extrapolation of the principle that lies behind the text about oxes and corn. I think you'll find more and more, the application you'll you'll get will be extrapolated, not a specific go-out-and-plow-corn text, but something that gives you the point. That's huge. And by the way, I think the Holy Spirit plays a huge role in both percolation and extrapolation in terms of the final point, application. I'm going to stop there. I was going to make my message follow through that problem is I cheat a lot. And, and so what happens is I percolate some places, I extrapolate in other places, and it, isn't, it doesn't lie down neatly, but it's all here. And, and I think in a, in a more in-depth work, I'll go into that in more detail. So let's have some general observations that have to do with the whole chapter and then our text. Paul's instructions here are for every church in every place at any time. Now, one of the things that happens with this text is people will say, well, that's 1 Corinthians. You know, the whole thing about the the tongues and the silence, those Corinthian women were very unique people, And, and he's only talking to them. I've got nine texts. I won't read all of them to you, but I'm going to read two to you. And the first is Paul's introduction to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who is this letter written to? The Corinthians and everybody else. Not just the Corinthians. Second one, 1 Corinthians 4.17, "'For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church.'" Now, unless we come to this text and say, this text is for me, then we're doing exactly what e- the evangelical world has done, to just push it off to the side, and it's the clearest text on how a church should gather for worship. Secondly, the the the, the instructions that Paul gives here regarding the worship of the church are really pluralistic, and I mean by that it's it's audience participation, not our audience uh, spectating, the, the, the process going on up here, but it's the audience participating. Isn't that what we do in our last hour? I mean, if somebody said to me, who's going to speak today? How would I know? But, but we know that God's going to prompt and that various people are, 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 are going to speak, and we're, we're going to be, Lord willing, we'll be edified and God will be glorified and And this, I think we have to say as well the the words that Paul is giving here in terms of the church and its practice are normative. See, I think the way in which we read this instruction about if one receive and by the way, I should say one prophet receives a revelation, uh, let the others judge. This is a prophet text, very interesting to me. Because Paul has worked very hard to show the superiority of prophecy over tongues and less interpreted, if you want to put that part to it. So it would be easy for somebody to say to a tongue speaker as a alleged prophet, I'm sorry, you're just a mere tongue speaker. I am a prophet, so I've got more status and power, and, and, and I own the pulpit more than you do. This text doesn't say that. It puts them on the same level. We'll deal with that in a minute. But there, there is an open element to this, and, and let's just say an open mic uh, to, to give you kind of an illustration. You're really not sure who is going to speak, uh, and we'll talk about how that worked out in Corinth a little bit more. But the, here's another big point, and you have to have this from the whole book. The church at Corinth was messy. They were a messy bunch. Boy, oh boy, you start in chapter 1, and they've got divisions and cliques. Chapter 6, they're going to court with one another. Chapter 5, you got immorality, and they're proud of it. Chapter 7, marriages are a mess. 8 through 10, they're worshiping idols. Good grief, they're a mess. So I want you to think with me for just a minute about you're a visitor, and you go to Corinth for, for church for the first time. What's it look like? Well, you're sitting there and a man and his wife come down the aisle to reach their seat and they're being greeted and welcomed and warmed and whatever. The only problem is the man's married to his mother. Oops. And, and then you see uh, as, the, as the meeting proceeds, you see all kinds of speaking going on. And, and it's very clear to me when he says each in order, it means you do it one at a time. <laughs> that isn't the way participation. You had 10 people scrapping over the mic, all speaking at the same time, and the tongue speakers weren't being interpreted. Nobody knew what it was. So you had this chaotic uh, carrying on going on in the church. It was just a huge mess. And it was everybody essentially saying, me first, <laughs> me first, or I'm a follower of Paul, of Apollos, Cephas, I am of Christ. So you had all these cliques and divisions, and, and some of the, 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 the people would not sit together because they were either the wrong clique or they had a court lawsuit going on. That's what the text tells us, a messy, messy church. So Paul gives us his prescription for how that ought to work. I think chapter 12 is a general abiding principle, and it's the principle of love. If the church is a church that's characterized by love, then you'll see yielding of the floor. You won't see the scrapping. You won't see the kind of things that are going on. Remember, Scripture says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. There'd be a lot of changes in the church if they were living according to love. There is that element of the superiority of prophecy over tongues, but he does not forbid tongues. What he says is tongues must be interpreted. And the reason is that what happens in church is for the glory of God. It's also for the edification of the saints. And if the saints aren't edified then it isn't worth doing in that manner, that manner of speaking. So, he says then, it's not necessary to speak. This is really interesting. He starts out in verse 26 by saying, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So, this is just kind of a, a piece of the bandwidth of what would happen in a meeting, Right? Here's the problem. Back in those days, I know they didn't have this song, but they had a bit of the theology. Remember that song that says, every time I feel the Spirit, what do you do? You pray. I like that song. What did they do? They spoke. They thought that every time that they they had a, a positive experience with the Spirit of God, that somehow that mandated sharing that with others. But if you're going to have two or no more than three who speak in tongues, how do you do that? Or two or no more than three prophesy. How do you do that? It means somebody needs not to speak. This is really interesting. I know that that there is that whole issue where uh, some women would say, well, I can't speak. Well, neither can most everybody else when you follow the text. This is when silence is golden, isn't it? Silence is golden when it leads to the edification of the body. And so he's really setting down sometimes not to speak. He says to the tongue speaker, when you have the movement of the spirit and you want to speak in tongues, speak to yourself and to God. See, you don't have to worship publicly to worship privately. And that's what he's saying. You can still go ahead and you can have the benefit of worship, but you don't do that publicly when other people don't understand what it is that's been said. Prophecy, he says in 1432, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That to me is even more significant than the tongues thing. Because a prophet, wouldn't you agree with me? A prophet's going to say to himself, what I have to say is really important. And Paul says, not of two or three guys who've already had some, that's enough. The principle of proportion, if you're going to have a meeting with all of these gifts, then you have to have a proportionate uh, expression of those gifts within the church. 1427 and 1440. Everything should be done decently and in an orderly way. That's why I said, I think when you went to the church at Corinth, you saw chaos, not order. And people are not edified by chaos. So Paul makes that principle a standing principle. It ought to be decent and it ought to be orderly. And the goal is always edification of the body. So, there are some specific, because Paul is focusing on the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, although he assumes other things go on, then those were the two problem areas, it appears. So, he says, two or no more than three speak in tongues. When an interpreter is not known to be present, you don't speak in tongues publicly, because nobody would understand what it was that was being said. How can you be edified by by what's indistinct? And and then finally, uh, it would say, because of Paul's teaching or leadership, that would certainly exclude women publicly speaking in a leadership way in the meeting of the church. Now, regarding prophecy, I find virtually the same standard applied with prophecy that I do with tongues. Two, no more than three, will speak... Here's the interesting one. The the prophet's speech is to be evaluated by the other prophets. Now, you could easily misread the text and say, a prophet speaks and everybody judges. Well, there's a sense in which you ought to do that. You ought to be saying to yourself right now, is that really right? (laughs) That's good. But, But what he's talking about is the other prophets... And he's saying when a prophet speaks, he's not independent and autonomous because a prophet may misspeak or someone may speak as though they were giving biblical prophecy and it's false. The other prophets pass judgment on that. And then the third one is when the prophet is speaking, if a revelation comes to another, he's to, to yield the floor And to be truthful, that's where I'm going to put most of my emphasis, but let's plow on a little bit more. So the general principle for participation is that people will come prepared with the whole spectrum of worship activity, but not everyone can or should speak it. So I, I think what happens is in most churches, people think, hey, he's the guy that's supposed to be prepared. Let him do the homework. I'll take the notes, whatever it is, but count me out. That's not what Paul says. Everybody comes to worship, prepared to worship, but only some will share. So here is, if I can, the guiding principle for me And I'm not saying there's only one. I'm saying this is what I locked on with Gordon Graham because it seemed to me it really fit. And and to state the principle just a little more broadly, I say this. Sometimes we need to step aside in order to facilitate the edification of the church by others. Does that make sense? Sometimes a person needs to step aside to facilitate the edification of the whole body by someone other than me. I've just not seen that practiced in in a routine way as Paul would would, uh, have it here for us. Why don't some people step aside? Oh, Well, let's back up for one second. How do we know we ought to step aside? Well, isn't it interesting in our last meeting three guys stood up at the same time. Did we have a problem figuring out somebody else wanted to speak? No, it's obvious. Sometimes it's not that obvious, but if you read Paul, uh, Paul's words and you realize everybody is to come prepared to participate, then don't you think in a group this size that somebody other than me has a word to say? And if you're consuming the time... They can't say it. So sometimes you just figure it out. Hey, and and I've got a friend, I love this guy, and and he was in government work, and he has this phrase, stop, give me the short version. And you know what? I don't think that what Paul is saying is somebody holds up a sign, I'm ready, and and the guy stops mid-sentence and sits down. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, Give them the short version, and more quickly, so that you leave time for the other things that that need to be said and done. Okay, why don't we step aside? Well, I think there are a couple of good reasons, I I mean, plentiful reasons (laughs) that aren't so good. Here's one. I'm the best qualified, and nobody else is really able to do it as well as I am. Now I want you to get now we're going to triangulate a little bit. You see that with David and his son Solomon. When you go to 1 Chronicles twice in 1 Chronicles, you remember this whole thing about uh 1 Kings chapter 1, uh the, one of David's sons is attempting to take over the kingdom and it's not Solomon. And 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 so David is described as being so out of it. He doesn't know what's going on, and his wife and a prophet have to come in and say, to him, wake up, David, your kingdom is crumbling. When are you going to make Solomon the king? We all know that's who it's supposed to be. Well, they finally push him over the edge, and he does it. But it's interesting that when you go to Chronicles, twice what David says is this, my son Solomon, he's young and inexperienced. He's not really skilled at temple building. So I've done most of the work for him. If you think I'm reading between the lines, folks, I am not. That's clear. Young and inexperienced, I'm going to do... And you look, you look at what David did in comparison to Solomon. David did everything but get his hammer and chisel out there and make it himself. He prepared all the resources, the assets, the plans. Why? Because Solomon just wasn't up to the task. Well, I hate to tell you this, folks. I hate to tell David this. He was twice as qualified as his father was. His father just wouldn't let go because he thought nobody could do it like him. That's a little bit like Elijah. When Elijah wants to turn in his badge and he says, I alone am left. And there's nobody else but me And because, you know, here I am at the end, it's just all going to collapse. And now, Elijah, there are a few thousand others that are standing in line behind you, but the first guy in line behind you is named Elisha. He'll get a double portion of the Spirit, and he'll do far more than you did. The problem is just letting go. New Testament example. Here's Barnabas, right? He works hard, in a sense, let's call it, to disciple Paul, and then he rejoices when Paul takes his place and excels further than he. That's his great delight. That's what ought to happen. So normally what kings did who wanted to sustain and prolong their leadership is they had co-regency. They made their son a king along with them and got to be, you know, junior king. And then they just took over. That was, that was a very logical thing. It was a succession thing. <laughs> <clears throat> then there were the other guys. They looked up the list of who are all the possible candidates for my job, and they killed them because they didn't want to lose their position, their power. You wonder why in the story of the birth of our Lord Jesus, when the Magi come <clears throat> and they announce to Herod, that the the king of Israel, the new king of Israel has been born, and it says, and Herod was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem. Well, I'll tell you why. Because they didn't want to lose their power. They didn't want to let go. Pretty scary stuff. All right, so we're supposed to step aside in order for the church to be built up. Here's, Here's one more. This is called triangulation. What other texts help us with that? 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 says this, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the key. The key is not only are you to yield the floor, as it were, to someone who has a revelation that's beneficial to the church, You're to actually train that guy to have it. You don't resist their development. You promote their development. That's discipleship. And I think the reason why discipleship fails so miserably in the megachurch world, and I don't mean that just exclusively megachurch, in the single-pastor world where they're not looking for replacement and they're not looking for retirement You don't train people to be better than you and do your job if you're not willing to give it up. That's what this text is talking about. Not just stepping aside at the proper time, but preparing people who will cause you to step aside. That's what I understand from this. So what's the application of all this? If you take that principle that there are times when we need to step aside so we may enhance the edification of the church through the ministry of others, then, A, this says a lot to us uh, who are in leadership about succession. And I have to tell you, I'm somewhat aware of what goes on out yonder, and there are a lot of pastors who won't even entertain the word. They don't want to talk about retirement. They don't want to talk about stepping aside. Sometimes their wives don't either. That's a scary thing. Leaders, pastors, Christian ministry leaders, we need to be thinking about in the broader scale, it's the same principle just played out in bigger scale, maybe we need to step aside permanently. Now, that's a thought, and you have to prepare for that. I was thinking about the application of that when you extrapolate. This is a great text for parents, isn't it? Isn't, isn't that what's going to happen? <laughs> and again, you're going to step aside one way or the other. It may be that they carry you away. But the reality is we as parents have a period of time when we have a primary responsibility with our children to instruct them, but we're weaning them, as it were, from that control so that we step aside and they carry on. That's our legacy. Our legacy isn't us hanging on, it's them carrying on. I think that says a lot to parents. I believe we at CBC, through the providence of God and the grace of God, have done an excellent job at preparing the next tier of leadership. I think it it, it has happened through the preaching, it has happened through the various forms of teaching, it has happened through the youth ministries that have been carried on, and if you watch our meeting, you notice younger people, younger guys getting up to share? That's leadership development, folks. God has been gracious to us, and one of the things that's beautiful about Community Bible Chapel is we can look down the corner of time and say, hey, here's our leaders. Here's the leaders we've got for the future. What a wonderful thing. Which leads to me. After almost 50 years of being an elder, I'm going to step aside. And, and it's only right. You know, I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. Maybe a little tired. But, but, you know, there is a point in time where if I linger on, what I'm really saying is what David said. They're young and inexperienced, they'll never make it. But they will, they will. And I need to be here as a non-elder cheering them on, but not trying to keep them out of the way. And so thanks to Gordon, I'm telling you, I've told the elders already, I'm going to retire as an elder. Doesn't mean I'm retiring from ministry. Doesn't mean I'm retiring from involvement. It simply means I have confidence that God will carry on this work through the people. He's prepared to do it, and that means old guys have to step aside. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We appreciate all the beauty of your Scripture and the way in which this seemingly irrelevant text really has much to say to us. Help us to heed it in whatever position we may be in. Help us to be willing to step aside as well as step up so that other ministries will happen for the edification of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.